0: Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Van Maren and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on lifesitenews.com Before I get started with today's episode I just want to take a quick look at what we're trying to do here on the Van Maren Show We spend every week talking to world changers normal people who are in the middle of upsetting the current culture pushing back against what progressives are trying to do to life and family and faith I think you'll all agree with me that we live in extremely serious times, and we're trying to talk to people who are doing their very best to respond to the challenges that we are currently living through as a culture. LifeSite News has just launched their summer fundraising campaign. It is a reader-funded organization, and they rely on these quarterly campaigns to fund the mission of bringing news, bringing this podcast, and bringing all sorts of essential commentary to millions of people every month. If you would like to become part of this mission, go to lifesightnews.com or simply click the link in the description of this podcast episode. This is something, of course, that is very important to all alternative media that are seeking to especially provide a contrast to what the mainstream media would like you to believe and what the mainstream media uh, would like the country, essentially, to have access to by way of information. On this podcast and at LifeSite News, we're doing something different. We're presenting an alternative that almost always gets silenced, but that we believe is essential. On to today's podcast, and speaking of essential stories that are almost never heard, uh, today I talked to Robert Oscar Lopez, and he's a Puerto Rican academic who first came to public attention when he wrote a column about what it was like to be raised by gay parents. He, just to give you a bit of his background, graduated from Yale University in 1993. He has a master's degree in classics from the University of Buffalo, which he achieved in two. 2007, and he joined the faculty at California State University in 2008, where he is a tenured associate professor. Of English and the classics. And so in 2012, he published that essay that I mentioned, Growing Up with Two Moms, and resulted in an explosive backlash and a conversation surrounding what uh, was actually going on on a front in the culture wars that rarely gets spoken about. Nobody ever talks to the children who grow up in these alternative family arrangements that are so pushed by the culture. But He uh, he spoke out about this, he was willing to take a stand, and I wanted to talk to him today because he's been writing out now on the Equality Act, which is an extraordinarily dangerous piece of legislation which recently passed the Congress and was sent on to the Senate. And I wanted to have uh, Robert Oscar Lopez on to talk about what the Equality Act means and why every single one of you listening should be extremely concerned about the Equality Act and its implications for the entire pro-life and pro-family movement. The Equality Act, uh, quite literally threatens religious liberty on such a scale that it can eliminate protections and legislations uh, virtually overnight. Everything we've done at the state level, all the work that has been done by the pro-life and pro-family movement could be destroyed overnight. And so to explain exactly what's going on and to share a bit of his story, I'd like to present this conversation with Robert Oster Lopez. Uh, first off, just tell our listeners a bit about yourself, uh, your background and your story.
1: Hi, uh, thank you for having me on. My name is, uh, Robert Oscar Lopez and I had a gay mom. So I grew up in a gay household from the time I was a little kid until my mom died when I was 19. And I was inducted, if you will, into the gay lifestyle at the age of 13 by some older teenage boys. And I stayed in that world until the age of 28. Uh, when I got out and I met my wife, we've been together for 20 years now, but it um, it took me a while to figure out that uh, the values that I had absorbed from the gay community were basically based on lies. And so then I decided to come forward many years later at the age of 41 and start speaking out about gay parenting and also just generally the problems with gay Culture. I think that what has happened, which is very tragic, is that all sides of this debate have proceeded in a state of either denial or ignorance about the real deep-seated problems in gay culture. Uh, they, they, Everybody, even the conservatives, seem to have a very naive and uh, ignorant understanding of what actually happens in the gay world, how harmful it is, how... Cruel it is, how unhappy their relationships are, how little tolerance there is, um, how little diversity there is. So I, I wanted to be able to move the conversation in that direction.
0: So I remember actually when when your essay on on uh, gay parenting came out, and I believe uh, if I'm not mistaken, you correct me if I am, you were urged to come forward by Ryan T. Anderson, who published your first right. essay. Yeah.
1: Yes, I, I he he urged me to do that. Yeah.
0: And so what was what was the gist of that essay for people who are listening because of course this is a very prominent topic right now uh because a lot of adoption agencies are are getting shut down or are under the threat of being shut down if they refused to uh permit children to be adopted by gay couples and as, as sort of a side note, one of the things that I've always found very interesting about this discussion is that the the assertion that there's no difference between gay parenting and a mother and a father, um, which is now presented as sort of a normal standard view by especially very aggressive uh, advocates like Dan Savage, is actually a very radical view when you consider it because essentially what you're saying is that either a father, or a mother are are fundamentally unnecessary for a child's well-being that one or the other uh, is not needed and that they bring essentially the same thing to the table i remember In one panel discussion, uh, Dan Savage actually said that, you know, children just need two parents who pay attention to them, uh, not parents with specific genital sets. And the reason I found that an interesting comment is because basically he was saying the only difference between a mother and a father is their genitals, which I think we could all agree is is, is a pretty absurd thing to say.
1: Well, yeah, one of them carried them in their womb for nine months. The other one did not. There's huge differences. And our whole language is full of, references to mother and father, these are very deeply emotional and traditional meanings to us, you would have to scrape all of language, which is what they're trying to do now. They're actually trying to change all of language. The gist of my article when I first brought it up in 2012, it was to defend uh, a man named Mark Rignares who published a uh, social science research which... Uh, at the time was probably the best research <clears throat> that was out there. I do have a lot of criticism of this approach, but uh, you know, at the time I was just happy that this research came out where he did a random sampling of people in the general population and then from that he pulled out the number of people who reported that they had been raised by a parent who was in a same-sex relationship and he found very high rates of uh, suicide and um, you know uh, se- sexual abuse and you know, dependence on public assistance, all these different problems. So uh, at that time he was being roundly attacked by people in the academy who said that his research was bad, basically by saying all the other researchers say one thing and you're saying something else you know which to me that's the Galileo effect. I mean it's like sometimes that's what happens. you have some guy who discovers the truth and everyone else is getting it wrong. So I was trying to come forward and publish that in the public discourse, and basically saying, look, as someone who grew up, in at least in a primordial form, in a gay home in the 70s and 80s, what he reports looks like my childhood. What the other studies report looks like some fantasy that has never existed in reality. I am sure that Dan Savage uh, does not turn off his foul mouth and his vile personality when he goes home and raises his children. See, I think what happens is all of the problems in the gay culture, and the gay community, it's a place of incredible sarcasm and just coldness. It's a very brutal place. And that filters into the home. And I think um, the clash that I had eventually with some of the conservative commentators who were arguing on this uh, came from this. They wanted to think in abstractions about natural law. Um, So they were saying, well, there's something in an abstract, general Sense There's a general principle that a man and a woman are important, either because of the biblical foundation in Genesis, which I agree with, or because of some kind of Aristotelian natural law. I wanted to come forward and say, I know gay culture. These, these parents, these gay parents are coming from gay culture. They're not going to be able to turn off the vulgarity, the nastiness, everything that you see with Dan Savage. That is how they will treat their kids. That's how they'll treat their kids. In a gay community where there are lots of gay couples raising children, even if the two guardians who are raising you do a good job to be nice to you, like that was, I would say my mother and her partner, they shielded me from a lot of those problems in gay culture. But once you become an adult and you start thinking independently, the gay community at large will come after you as a traitor if you don't continue to read from the same script. And so... It's impossible if you are a gay adult who has gotten into a relationship with another gay adult. At some point, you guys had to cross through gay culture, and you have associations and you have connections to it. You will not be able to protect your children from the cruelty, the unmerciful, unloving cruelty of that community. And, um, you know, I think a lot of conservatives did not want me to speak like this because they said it was hateful, that they were going to look like bigots. And, and that is what I really fault the conservative movement for, is that they have never confronted the reality of what happens in the gay world.
0: What happened when your essay was published? Because again, I, I remember yeah. I remember <clears throat> Twitter exploding for one, but then again, um, in the age of Trump, that's no longer a uh, an event uh, by right. by any standard. So, what happened when you did publish this event? Because people like Ryan T. Anderson. Um, They're somewhat unpopular because they consistently insist on discussing things that, as you said, the conservative movement doesn't particularly want to discuss. But how was your essay received at at large and what was the reaction to it?
1: At the beginning, I think that there was somewhat of a gentle reaction to it. Like in the first couple hours, I would say there were a lot of conservatives who expressed support to me. There were a lot of adults who had been raised by gay parents who contacted me and thanked me for sharing my story. There were some gay activists who reached out and tried to be uh, conciliatory or wanted to open up a dialogue. Some of that, maybe for a day or so, but very quickly, I'm talking within 36 to 48 hours, uh, the, the mean fringe just blanketed social media, and they drowned out everything else. They dug up as much information about me as they could. They very quickly went after doxing my family members, trying to figure out who my friends and family were. They went after my employer. Within several hours, there were 41 different officials within California State University who were contacted. And at that point, there could be no more discussion. Uh, I was on the defensive. They were vicious. All of these sort of conciliatory or moderate conservative or uh, well-intentioned liberals who wanted to really hear what I had to say, they were all just muted by their own cowardice. They they did not want to risk anything. These people were too dangerous. So they largely backed away. I was left with a circle of Catholic conservative leaders like Ryan Anderson and some other people who uh, I would say they defended me. Um, but, you know, there were disagreements among us about what to argue. And so, you know, but gradually, They started, you know, not wanting necessarily for me to talk as much as other people because they really were relying on a nicer sounding, more gentle depiction of what was going on. So it was a complicated. Uh, array of events and 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 cultural forces that were were tugging there, but um, I think at, at the heart of it, what happened was we just lost the argument. You know, I think that a lot of conservatives, this was an issue that they felt passionately about. They had won many different state plebiscites and referenda uh, to try to institute traditional marriage, um, but it's just. There was always some stumbling block, and we just couldn't get it together as a movement. But I, I think that we need to move forward, you know what I'm saying, um, to try to to, to try to gather it together. But I did – one of the good things that came out of that um, sort of train wreck in 2012 was I was able to build a connection with many uh, adults who had been raised – in same-sex homes, and uh, I did publish a book called Jeff's Daughters where I amassed a lot of their testimonials, and I feel good about the fact that I really worked hard to launch other people's writing careers um, that uh, were given a voice, people like Katie Faust, I worked really hard to help her, um, and and some other people, so there were good things that came out of it, Uh, and I think that the children of gays are going to be a very interesting bank of voices as we go forward. Uh, certainly, my experience with the ex-gay community is um, also, that's also been pretty colorful. Um, I think both of those groups are going to be important voices as we, we get further down this cultural trend and people are going to want to try to piece together what happened and how so many people got this so wrong.
0: And it's sort of interesting because there's going to be plenty of people who have conflicted stories when they say, for example, I really loved my parents, but that wasn't actually the kind of upbringing I needed. And so how in a culture that sort of basically result like basically just shouts about this issue all the time right so anything that sort of questions the narrative of this is objectively good gets called you know homophobic or bigoted um and as you mentioned a lot of conservatives don't even want to talk about it so what about people who have genuinely complicated and nuanced stories where they say things like i really loved my mother i really loved my father um but at the same time that wasn't the sort of upbringing that served me well as a child growing up
1: I think that they as individuals have to grow, and and we have to reach out to them as individuals. Maybe someone like you wouldn't necessarily be the right person, maybe somebody who grew up also in a gay home, but they have to uh, grow in in their walk with the Lord if they happen to be Christian. If they're not Christian, they have to grow in, in their own maturity, and they have to realize that this is an issue that goes far beyond their own personal experience and personal connection that there are many kids out there who are being forced into these homes, and there's no other way to describe it. Uh, they're being forced into these homes, um, and this movement to have family redefined so that you don't need a mother and a father, number one, that completely undoes the, the Ten Commandments because the Fifth Commandment is honor thy mother and thy father. And so there's really no way to have any kind of mosaic principles of conduct if you're going to rip that out. You might as well rip out thou shalt not... Uh, murder, you know. Um, so I think that kids who grew up in these homes, at some point, they have to go on a journey, which I went on, where you realize this isn't really about me. Yes, I did love my mother. I did love her partner. Um, and I love my dad. Uh, he's still alive. Uh, but this is about other people. And um, And if I have to come forward as a public witness and tell the truth, does something that I need to do. That doesn't mean that I'm disrespecting my individual mother and father. It's because Jesus Christ calls us to speak the truth. The truth will set us free. He says, what has been whispered in the shadows will be shouted from the rooftops. So you have to give your public testimony and you have to tell the truth. If, in fact, you totally love this and you thought that uh, your experience was the best thing ever, then, at the very least, uh, be supportive of other people who didn't have that experience who want to bring this testimony forward. But I will tell you one thing, uh, Jonathan. Um, in all the backlash that I received, I can't really think of any people who had been raised in gay homes who came after me. Right. I think even the ones who had a very positive image of their upbringing in a gay home, they understood the conflicts and the problems, and uh, they tended to sympathize with the fact that I was getting attacked. Um, uh, the, the, the worst of it, to me, were the gay parents, the, the gay adults who are raising children at home, because none of them, I can't think of any of them except for maybe one or two, ever came forward and asked the gay community to stop attacking people like me and Brittany Klein and Don Stefanovich and Denise Schick, all of us who had come forward to say that there were problems with this kind of upbringing. Um, I I just found that uh, there's a real lack of the spirit of a parent in that whole community of gay adults who are raising children because I don't understand how if you are a gay adult and you're raising a child, you can look at somebody else who was raised by a gay adult getting beaten up by your community and not say, hey, that could be my child in 20 years. Don't talk to them like that. I didn't see that instinct anywhere, right. Jonathan, and that really worries me, because what that shows me is that this gay community—they're not going to report abuse; they're going to cover it up. They're not going to report emotional mistreatment; they're going to cover it up. They're not going to cover—they're not going to, you know, uh, try to stop their fellow gay people from exposing their children to inappropriate sexual conduct or inappropriate language, they're going to cover it up. They're going to enable it. And, and I can say that in, in a general way because I went through seven years of this backlash, and the voices did not come forward. We didn't hear any gay parents coming forward with the voice of a parent saying, I am raising this child in my home, and you know I, I can see the reflection of my child in this adult who's being attacked they don't have the heart of that what what they're really approaching this issue with is a sense of self-promotion you know they want uh, to have a child they want to have a child's love they want to have a child's obedience it's really based on what they want they have even redefined in the equality act which passed the house of representatives they have redefined foster care and adoption as a public accommodation for gay people can you believe that they, you know, it's basically that they redefined it as a service to give gay people the experience of being parents. Where does that leave the child in all of that? Right. You know, and, and when people like Dan Savage say, <clears throat> well, a child just wants to be loved, that's a very convenient self-justification because what that means is you're projecting onto the child the fact that, um, your desires are going to magically help this child. I mean, when I get stalked by somebody, that doesn't mean that I'm happy that somebody loves me. Do you know what I'm under- you know right. what I'm saying right. like there's a lot more to that than saying, Well, I love the person, so that should be enough um so I mean, there are deep, deep problems with this uh with all of this with this community and um and I don't really see this turning around until the people who have uh, the money. And the platforms on the conservative side really start talking tough. I mean, it, the, the lukewarm way that they have been going at, about this it, is really, really going to backfire. So
0: so the, what the response to that would be is that there's a lot of studies that say kids that are raised in gay homes are, are fine. That's what Dan Savage says in his panel discussions. What would your response to that be?
1: Well, the studies do not meet the disciplinary guidelines of their own discipline they're not they they're not random samples their studies were they usually it was self-reported and they usually canvassed the parents or they or they at, if they had any discussion with the children it was mediated by the parents and the children were young and still living at home and and they didn't really have a conception they can't really evaluate many of these questions the metrics that they used were very um specific and, and don't really speak to the larger issues of what it means to be a prosperous home. You know, it would be, well, did they get good grades in school? Okay, yeah. If you have a bunch of rich gay people who are self-selected to be the respondents to this study, yeah, they can pay for tutors. They probably have the, the ability to send them to a private school. And, um, you know, maybe they might have high grades, but that doesn't change the fact that they've been denied such an important thing as a connection to where they came from and examples of healthy heterosexual relationships and a mother and a father. I mean, you you cannot – those studies are are not worth the paper they're written on. They will be reviewed, I'm going to say, in 100 years. People will look back at those studies, and it will just be laughable. They will look at them as it was the biggest fraud. when I was uh, trying to get research grants when I was at California State University – You know, I became very familiar with human subject testing guidelines and uh, research ethics, and it's amazing how these studies have been able to get passed through and published with so little ombudsmanship, so so little refereeing from people who are saying, okay, yeah, you can't post a little sign in a lesbian bookstore in San Francisco and say, hey. If you're raising kids, I'm a gay researcher and I want to do a research study on gay parenting. Come talk to me and then interview 34 lesbian couples that are raising kids and ask them how they're doing. And they say it's great. And then you publish that. That's a joke. Right. I mean, that's that, that it's it's a total, total joke. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, I th- that would be my response. I think that there are other better social science studies that have come out, like Donald Paul Sullins. I thought his was very good. Walter Shum just came out with a very good book. Through the Wilberforce Press. So, you are getting better social science research, but part of this is I don't think that this is an issue that can be settled by social science. And that's kind of one of my, um, another one of my sort of disagreements with that approach, because ultimately I I don't like the idea of of making a report card system and showing that there's something wrong uh, with the kids who who were raised in gay couples. You know, I I think it, 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 even if I did well in school like I did, you know what I mean? And I never committed any crimes. And and I'm a happily married man, now with two kids. I still have a claim against society for having deprived me of what was mine, you know, which was a mother and a father. Um, And so I, I don't think we have to prove that we're dysfunctional in order to be able to stake our rights and to be able to 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 ask for dignity.
0: So when you, when you say that you don't think social science is the thing that's going to solve this, and, and we've seen a lot of these sort of culture war battles just disintegrate into a your study versus my study sort of thing, what do you mm-hmm. think actually will uh, make an impact? How do you think this argument should be had? The testimonies of people like yourself?
1: I think humanities are a big part of it. I think the testimonies are important. Um, I think qualitative studies that are less statistics-driven. This is why I I don't necessarily cite Brad Wilcox as much as other people, because I think he's so number-crunching focused. Um, I I think that uh, we need to have, as a culture, we have to have some agreed-upon principles, um, and we have to have an awareness of our history. This is why I think it's good for the humanities to be involved in this. One of the texts that I found that was most informative for me was a, a text called The Selling of Joseph, Uh, by Samuel Sewell. That was the first abolitionist text written in English. And do you know what citation in the Bible he used to, to come up with the revolutionary idea for that time that slavery was universally wrong? What's that? The text that he cited was Matthew 19 about marriage, what the Lord has brought together, let no man put asunder, because he said slavery separates a child from his natural parents, men from women, and men from their nation. And so it it dawned on me like a bright light that, wow, the whole abolitionist movement it was, is based on the same things that drive us to defend traditional marriage. It's the same movement. It comes from the same text of the Bible. Um, and so I think if you can find, uh, you know, um, th- those kinds of common cultural foundations and speak to them in an eloquent way, I think that's... The way to go forward. I'm not going to try to discontinue social science, but I, I really, looking at what's happened over the last ten years, I just don't think that that's gonna win any battles, and I don't think we necessarily get it right when we, when we follow the social scientists. If you're completely within the realm of a kind of positivist sociology, you might come up with the conclusion that there really is no, uh, substantial difference between um, gay parenting and straight parenting, because you're not really going to have a very deep or profound understanding of the word substantial. Right, right.
0: So uh, sort of m- moving on uh, to to the crux of the conversation, which is you have uh, uh, recently issued a warning about uh, what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, the Equality Act was just passed the U.S. Congress. And I'm sad to say I think many people, even many conservatives, many Christians, simply haven't heard about the Equality Act. And and I think a lot of people... Um, are are sort of asleep at the wheel, mainly because they feel like Donald Trump has it kind of taken care of. Because the Trump administration um, is so filled with people who are socially conservative, a lot of the initial fears about a Trump uh, administration have been alleviated. And thus, there's been virtually no um, uh, major outcry about this Equality Act, and, and your column was one of the handful that I saw that addressed it. So could you just sort of explain to our listeners what the Equality Act is and what sort of dangers that it poses?
1: Well, the Equality Act is technically a revisiting of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was meant to protect African Americans. In the uh, in the American context, and uh, the the thing is that we had constitutional law that had protected us on the books, but there was an entire culture in the Deep South and in various parts of the United States of unofficial segregation, segregation that was not de jure. It wasn't by law, but it was de facto so um what would what would happen is uh, black people would find that even if they were in a place where there was no law mandating them to be segregated, uh, restaurants wouldn't feed them, they couldn't check into a hotel, they couldn't shop at any stores that were decent <clears throat> because people would exclude them so uh, the Civil Rights Act sort of took the Fourteenth Amendment and said, "Look, public accommodations fall under a different kind of." category here. Even if they're not government sponsored or government directed, they still have to obey these principles for the good of society. All right. So that was a good thing in 1964 for the most part. Now you have to fast forward to today. What they've done is they've said everything that that we just said that applied to black people and their history now also applies to sex. It applies to sexual orientation and it applies to gender identity. And the law does not really define sexual orientation or gender identity very clearly. So these can be taken to mean, I mean, this could be stretched to mean almost anything. It also drastically expands the the scope of the 1964 Civil Rights Act because now it says that public accommodations include literally everything. It includes not just important goods and services, but it includes recreation, amusement. It includes any kind of display, discussion, publications. It doesn't have to be a physical space. It can be an online website. It can be a party. Uh, it's This is not just affecting businesses. It's also affecting what they call in the, in the law, private actors. Um, and so it's going to affect nonprofits, voluntary associations, and just people who are your friends and relatives. You're going to be able to file complaints against them if there's any quote-unquote gathering for any of these purposes and anybody does anything that uh, discriminates against you. And they're very clear to include in discrimination the word harassment, which we know from the last 10 years they have expanded to include basically uh, the absence of positive statements or even just body language or rolling your eyes or, or a joke. All of those things count as harassment now, and that's baked into the law. So this goes so far beyond what the Civil Rights Act law tried to regulate. And You know, the the history of black people is so different from the history of male-female relations, let alone the history of uh, gay people, which is very recent. That I mean, homosexual was only coined as a term in 1869. And then you're talking about trans, which is like 20 years old. Um, so that it, it's a, such a mismatch, and it will give the government so much power to surveil and uh, to interfere with your life, because we know that they use these mechanisms to sue people and to file complaints, and they're going to do it, and it affects everything. It bans conversion therapy. It basically will nullify all of the anti-abortion laws because there's a whole section in there on on pregnancy. Um, It's going to abolish, eventually, um, sex-differentiated bathrooms. We've been hearing a lot about trans individuals going into the bathroom of the opposite sex, but believe it or not, this law looks to me like it's heading towards abolishing all sex segregation in bathrooms because it equates explicitly that kind of segregation with the segregation of black and white bathrooms in the 1950s. So you're talking about a, a, a weird reality. and I mean, the whole country is not going to be recognizable if this thing gets passed because it's not going to sit there as a dormant law in the books. It's going to be very active and it's going to be enforced on us and we know that the people behind it want to enforce it on us
0: well one of the things that uh that I was I was really interested in is why considering what you've just stated the nullification of abortion laws the elimination of you know um unisex um institutions and, and that sort of thing why why hasn't there been way more conversation about this i've seen like one article in the national review um, like I said, one of the reasons I got into contact with you in the first place is because you're one of the only public voices on this issue. But it seems like, um, considering the fact that this piece of legislation could literally nullify the pro-life laws everybody else is talking about at the moment, that this would be a, a, a huge centerpiece for discussion. Why, why do you think it hasn't been?
1: Well, i list some of the reasons in that article. There were certain mistakes that we made. <clears throat> that I think we have to face up to, and I, I was part of them as well. Uh, they all revolve around just the failure to confront what the gay culture is and what goes on in it. You know, one of the big mistakes was—I don't know who made this decision—but this was about 2008, 2009. Uh, the conservatives said it was just going to be about the legal institution of marriage, which was a terrible that was a, a terrible focus. I mean, they, they they didn't want to talk about the sexual morality. They didn't want to talk about the health risks of the act. They didn't want to talk about all of the negative behavior and the vulgarity and the obscenity that goes on in the gay community. It was all just about, um, you know, not giving them marriage certificates, which I just, that was not a high priority. So I think a lot of the pro-family social conservatives, their whole infrastructure was devoted for years. All of their money was going to fighting this this battle that was so um, marginal, com- considering everything that was coming at us. The sex education in the schools, for instance, you know, that just flourished while we were while we were debating about uh, florists and bakers making cake. So that was one mistake. Another mistake was that there were just a lot of people who were in charge of conservative platforms like National Review, like The Federalist, like Daily Wire, um, where there were people who were high up who happened to have some gay friends and they fell under the influence of their gay friends, and people couldn't distinguish between the individual that they know and that they may love and the whole cultural and sexual behavior that goes along with homosexuality. So I can tell you directly for years, there were, I mean, you couldn't get things published on most platforms if you were criticizing what was going on with the trans movement and what was going on with um, homosexual intercourse, like all of the sex diseases and the molestation of children, all of that stuff. Everybody had suppressed that in the conservative world. Um, and, and that went on for years. And so I, I just don't think most of these publications have the staff or the stomach to deal with this. I mean, the, the Equality Act is basically all of those uh, compromises that they made, that they have to face the fact that they were mistakes and we, we have to change we have to like totally change course another mistake they made was they very consciously decided that the pro-life movement was gaining respectability and so they were going to front load the pro-life movement and now i really respect the pro-life movement and i think their victories recently we should take that as a shot in the arm we should we should ride on their coattails because most pro-life people i know are with us on the gay issue they're with us on it But there was a whole class of organizations and people who saw that there was money to be made by putting their money behind the pro-life movement and then putting to the side the gay issues. They didn't want that. And that's what you have in the Trump administration to a T. He basically is totally winning his chops with the evangelical movement by doing everything that the pro-life movement wants. And he's very carefully trying to avoid the gay issue. Um, and the only solution to that is we as evangelicals, or as I don't know if you're Catholic, but we as religious people of faith, we have to get those issues onto the front burner. I mean, the Equality Act should be the wake-up call, because if this goes into law, I mean, it's over. The, the pro-life movement's going to lose everything along with everybody else. I will say this, though, so Jonathan. I, I think that the, the Equality Act did, in fact, inspire a lot more reaction than I normally had seen. From people. Um, I think it definitely, there was, uh, I saw quite a few articles, for instance, in the Federalist um, and in some of those journals where we had basically assumed that they would not run a lot of stuff that was critiquing definitely homosexuality. Um, but I think I have seen that in a lot of places.
0: Okay, so what are the chances that the Equality Act is actually going to get passed? Um,
1: uh, I, I think it's high. I, I mean, people are saying there's no way it'll pass. I, I mean, I don't I, – I grew up with this gay underground. I, I know their tactics. They, they they don't give up. They want this thing to get passed. Um, and they have enough straws in the Senate that they will come up with some kind of distraction, some kind of diversion of attention to somewhere else. And so while everyone's looking in one place, they'll get a couple senators to sign on to this. It'll go to Trump's desk. Maybe what they'll do is they'll get Trump to sign some pro-life um, declaration at the same time that he, he signs this into law. And then all the social conservatives will be whooping and hollering because, like, some symbolic uh, anti-abortion measure just got passed. And then it'll get passed. I think the chances are very, very high that this is going to come into law. This is coming to us. It's coming to a neighborhood near you.
0: So you don't think that the social conservatives, Mike Pence, etc., would, if let's say it passes in the Senate, would encourage Trump to veto it?
1: I think social conservatives will. I think that they will. I think, um, I, I think the social conservative movement right now is a waking up. I think that what part of the Trump revolution was, uh, you know, on, on, and I don't want to step on my friend's toes, but part of it was a rejection of the established conservative movement, and I think that's yeah. a good thing for social conservatives, because I think, you know, a lot of our money, our donations, our time was going to um, kind of very entrenched social conservative lobbying bureaucracies that just weren't doing the, the, the job well. And so I think that the voice, that the rise of these new voices, I'm seeing a lot of new nonprofits and think tanks and a lot of new publications that are coming out. And, and I do see a young generation that's a lot more vocal um, and that just doesn't care. They're not trying to get tenure at Harvard. So they're going to go out there and they're going to they're going to talk the way that they need to talk. I think the trans movement is helping us to a certain degree because it is so out there um, and it is much more public and in your face than the gay movement was. And so I think that there are a lot of people who were maybe sitting on the fence when it was just about gay marriage who then now are are, are getting up and doing stuff. So I'm hopeful that the social conservatives are going to mobilize Um, And, uh, you know, I I think that if we do mobilize, I think we can stop the Equality Act from going into law. But I think the social conservative issues need to be at the forefront for the 2020 election. And they were not in 2016. And I think we need to be up front because you can have a great economy with a low unemployment rate. But if your culture has completely fallen apart, you're still going to have high suicides. You're still going to have high opioid addiction you're gonna have a faithless society that is unraveling, and you're gonna see the kind of uh rancor and unpleasantness that you see every day on social media. You know we have to bring back conservative social values you know and and that can't constantly be put to the side for free market corporate policy. I think what I've been noticing from Tucker Carlson and people like that is that a lot of these folks are starting to sound like me <laughs> which right makes me feel good you know i mean i think maybe this is the one where we'll do it the other thing is i think that we've got to put the department of education under a big burning blazing red spotlight for 2020 we've got to go after these colleges i think we there there has to be a drastic drastic move um not just the colleges but the k-12 to to cut these cut the money off to these institutions that are pumping out this terrible research and brainwashing the kids. And I think the way to do it is not going to be by fighting over content or academic freedom. It has to be through the money. Because I know from my 21 years in higher ed, colleges, you can't sue them to change. You can't persuade them. You can't shame them. You've got to cut off their money. And the way to do it is to basically say, look, we're pulling all federal funding from these colleges. I don't care if you're a conservative college or a liberal college. None of you are going to get federal money. You're going to have to, you know, make money your own way, and, you know, you don't get tax exemptions. I think if there was something huge and drastic like that, that would help the social conservative movement because they would lose all this excess money that just magically seems to appear to support the pro-gay cause. All of this money really ultimately comes from the universities. Um, uh, That's how they they, they keep this afloat, because the pro-gay movement, they don't really earn any money. They don't do anything productive. Um, So, I think These are some things that we have to consider as we're going into 2020.
0: So you say that social conservatives need to mobilize and push back against the Equality Act. What does that look like in tangible, practical terms?
1: You know, I would suggest people to look at the website of mass resistance, uh, which I I worked with for a number of years. Um, You know, they get people to go out to the library and stand in front of it and have a press conference. They pass out flyers. Um, uh, They, you know, they get out and, and they fight it in the trenches. And we have to do that. We have to get to watch. We have to mobilize people. We have to bring them into the street. Um, and uh, so those are some things. We also just have to keep on publishing the daylights out of this stuff. You just have to keep keep on blogging, keep on forwarding the blog, keep on tweeting the blog, keep on... You know, like that piece that I wrote for the stream, I was shocked because it got almost 10,000 shares, which is like that's way beyond anything else I've ever done for the stream. And I did get a lot of feedback on it. You just got to keep on breaking... The silence. And uh, I think as we get to 2020, I think it's important. Um, you know, we have to be wise as serpents and, and gentle as doves. I mean, we, we, we have to ask very pointed questions to the candidates. We've got to put forth new candidates, get rid of some of these incumbents um, who are Republican, but who just constantly compromise and don't do anything. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, I think the, the, the most the, the least helpful thing is for us to sit and to just constantly feel powerless because we're not powerless. We, you know, the, we, there's a lot of us, and we're all upset about this. So uh, we should move forward. And, of course, we have to pray, and we have to constantly look for churches that are going to support us. I think if you're in a church that is getting weird about these things, just go to another church. You know, leave, leave that church. Um, you know, if, if you're Catholic, go to another parish because, you know, once they start compromising on the gay and trans stuff, then that's going to be in the Sunday school, that's going to be in all of the church Bible studies and and all of the vacation Bible school stuff, you know. So we need to surround ourselves with people who are like-minded, and we need to be strategic and just be very, very forward. And don't worry about getting it wrong, you know. I mean, we got a lot of things wrong in the past, but hey, we did something, and, and that we kept the torch alive. So, like, just go do something. Doing something is better than doing nothing.
0: Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this with us.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Jonathan.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with American academic Robert Oscar Lopez. He is now a professor of humanities at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And he was kind enough to come on the Van Maren Show and explain exactly why it is that we should be so concerned about what is going on with the Equality Act, what is going on inside our culture, as well as providing his own insights from his own very specific experience. Thank you so much for joining the show. If you want to see past shows or other news or other commentary, please head over to lifesightnews.com. This show airs on all of the podcast platforms, and so you can access it wherever you get your podcasts. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.